chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. This podcast is sponsored by Four Data, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Four Data. I use their website hosting services. And I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcast listeners, 4Data will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4Data, they fix IT. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a very special guest. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's an honour to have you here. Now, before I introduce Patricia and talk about the amazing things that she's been doing, I just wanted to let you know that my next course, Six Weeks to Abundance with the Joyful Frugalista, starts the week of the 19th of October. To book in for that, there are limited places. Please go to my website, www.joyfulfrugalista.com. Look for the shop and sign up. I would really love to have you on board. It's such a transformative course. It's run over six weeks with Zoom, a Facebook group and other course materials. Now, Patricia is the family joy expert. She helps families with neurodiverse children, such as those who have autism, ADHD, ADD, dyslexia, and others such as dyspraxia. Have I pronounced that right? Yes, you have. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I know so many families who have children who have one or more of these neurodiverse conditions. Patricia helps and supports families to move away from stress, overwhelm, anxiety, and worry to a state of relief happiness, better family balance, and joy. And I'm all about joy. Yes, yes. So by Serena, and <laughs> <laughs> all about joy. All about yeah. joy. So Patricia, what does neurodiversity mean? Okay, so uh, neurodiversity. So what we're starting to recognize now is language is starting to change. And this is particularly so as well in the autism community. So there people in the autism community are trying to move away from using words such as autism and autistic and moving towards using words like neurodiversity and neurodiverse. So what neurodiversity is, is it's a spectrum. Neurodiverse people, their brain functions differently. So their neural pathways function differently to neurotypical people. Mm -hmm. As I said, it's a spectrum. And what we're recognizing now, this is very new research that ADHD and autism are all part of the one spectrum. And then other conditions like you mentioned, the dyspraxia and dyslexia, They're called comorbidities. So what happens is they tend to sit with autism and ADHD. So you will have, you can have autism and dyslexia, you can have autism and ADHD, you can have autism and dyspraxia. But that's what neurodiversity is. But there are many challenges that come with neurodiversity, but there are also many good things as well. What are some of the good things? Because I guess you tend to hear more about the Mm. negatives, especially my children at school and a school that has a special needs program. tend to hear 
well, actually not through my school. My school's actually quite good and quite inclusive. But in mm. general, you tend to hear about the negatives. What are mm. some of the, the opportunities? The positives are most of them are very creative. A lot of people, not all, I'll be careful not to generalize, but a lot of people with autism or ADHD might be very artistic, very creative, very musical, possess the ability to think outside the box, typically engineers, architects, accountants, people like that. Quite often they'll find that they're on the autism spectrum somewhere, but not just creativity, very loyal. As employees, very loyal, very black and white, very literal, so won't take a sick day. We'll work really hard and we'll follow instructions to the letter. So in the workplace, that can be a real benefit. And another real plus that we're starting to realize now too, there used to be a myth that people on the autism spectrum and with ADHD didn't have much empathy. Now we're actually starting to realize that they actually feel empathy intuitively. So if I was with you and you were really distressed and I was on the autism spectrum, I would actually pick that up and actually feel your distress. They'd pick that up and they'd feel that, but then how do they respond? They respond in a different way? When they're older and they've learned how to work with that and what it means, they will respond appropriately and will know that you're in distress and try to help you. When they're younger, that's where you get, for want of a better word, like what we would call misbehavior in the classroom or whatever, but it's not misbehavior. It's because they don't know what to do with that emotion. That's where you get things happening like maybe hitting other children or sometimes like throwing furniture and things like that. It's because they feel the angst and distress so much, but they don't have the emotional intelligence at that age or the language to be able to verbalize what's going on. Mm, and that's interesting because from the outside, you don't know what's going no, on. No, no. You just see what we label as bad behavior and don't understand why that's happening. That's right. Absolutely. It's very challenging. Now let's talk about your own family. You have experience of having children on the spectrum. Is that right? Yes, I do. So I have two beautiful boys. They're 15 and 17 years old, currently in year 10 and year 11. And both are on the autism spectrum. My older one is on the autism spectrum and has ADHD with it and also has low muscle tone and a condition called dysgraphia, which makes it writing difficult and the ability to be able to form letters. And my younger one has autism and also is dyslexic. So that's where you see the comorbidity sitting. So quite a few things going on in your family. Yeah. And how did you notice that your boys were neurodiverse? With my old one, he was diagnosed at the age of eight, but I noticed probably when he was about two that something was different, something was unusual. So he was doing typical behaviors like we were talking before. He used to flap his hands, used to rock, used to find change really difficult, has a lot of sensory issues as well around food and things like that. And also as a baby, didn't sleep. So didn't that, sleep yeah. at all? Not really, no. Maybe like in 45 minutes stints until he was about 14 months old. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a challenge. <laughs> right there. That's a big challenge. But he didn't get diagnosed until he was eight. And the reason why he didn't get diagnosed is because, and both of them actually, because my younger one didn't get diagnosed until 14. So you know how it's a spectrum. They are what you would call, now they use the term autism generally, both of them are what you would call Asperger's. Quite difficult to pick up because performing well at school, mm -hmm. learning to read, reaching all the milestones, particularly my older ones struggled a lot socially, had challenges with making friends, things like that. Yeah, so he didn't get diagnosed till eight. My younger one didn't get diagnosed until he was 14. And it was actually my younger one, he actually picked up, he thought that something was going on with him. Really, your oh. youngest one had that awareness oh. 
that he wasn't quite the same as neuro, what's the term, neurotypical? Neurotypical, yeah. And also too, I think, awareness of his brother and also the work that I do as well. Yeah. Mm, that's fascinating with mm. that subjectivity because I always assume that neurodiverse kids perhaps didn't have that level of subjectivity about no, themselves. Yeah. Which is, yeah, quite amazing. We've talked about some of the key challenges you faced, like an obvious one being the lack of sleep. That yeah, you yeah, had yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. What are some other challenges? Look, a lot of worry, a lot of angst, worry that they would be okay. I remember I talk about this, I'm actually writing a book, and in my book I talk about when you initially get the diagnosis, worry, angst, their future, are they going to be okay, are they going to be able to have a normal life, normal job, normal school experience, all of those things. And unfortunately some children on the spectrum can't because sometimes have an intellectual disability together with the autism and then might have to go to a school such as Black Mountain or something like that here in Canberra, which is one of our schools for people that are more disabled. There were all of those worries. Marco initially, in the early years, had a lot of difficulty with regulating his emotions and also him regulating his body. So we had to do a lot of work with an OT for him to sort of learn that regulation. That must be challenging, that stereotypical situation, which I've suffered as a mother. You're mm. at a supermarket, you're going through the checkout, and a child has a meltdown. Mm. My youngest, who is neurotypical, I think, although he's gifted, socialization is a little bit different to some other kids, but we think he's neurotypical. Mm. But even so, spectacular tantrums. Mm. So how is it when you're, say, doing everyday things that you do as a mum, mm. going shopping in a supermarket, and you're there with neurodiverse kids mm. who have a meltdown? It's really interesting. Of course, this was happening before we knew because, as I said, he didn't get diagnosed till the age of eight. And I do remember getting those looks in the shopping centres or the supermarket. <laughs> those looks. Those looks. You know those looks where you get those disapproving looks from other mothers and you can't control your child and your child's naughty and all this sort of thing. For example, with a parent that knew that if you knew your child was on the spectrum, one thing that you can do to calm them down or help them, sometimes they need feedback, like strong feedback. So, for example, to be hugged really, really tightly and that can help to calm their nervous system down or even just to start breathing with them and things like that. But the problem is once a meltdown has started, this is the difference between a meltdown and a tantrum. Once a meltdown has started, if you're talking to the child, they won't actually be taking it in. So you almost have to let the meltdown pass to be able to then help to calm mm. them down because what's going on in their brain with their, their nervous system that they can't actually take it in, but they're not deliberately being naughty as such and in inverted commas. They just need to get through that to then be able to be responsive to you being able to calm them and them kind of come back to a sense of equilibrium, if that makes sense. I know friends who have children who are neurodiverse. Like I actually find it exhausting being around them. Mm. And that sounds very selfish of me because mm. I'm not dealing with that day to day. But I sort of look at them and go, my goodness, I'm exhausted being mm. around you and I'm not dealing with this day to day. So what kind of support and respite is available to families who are dealing with this? There is respite and support available. If families have NDIS funding, they can access respite. There's one agency called Hire Up where they can actually have a person come and be with their children like literally like babysitting but will have an expertise or an interest in autism will come they can be with the children for a couple of hours while the parents can go out and have a bit of respite there are also respite centers where children can go to have a sleepover where the parents can get a break but a lot of families that I work with I will recommend them to use things like 
higher up and things like that. So they can at least go out and have a morning together or have an afternoon together or just have that break. That would be the biggest thing where they would be able to use NDR's funding to get some of that respite or some of that rest. But mind you, to get NDR's funding, you have to have a diagnosis and it has to be autism. So NDR's doesn't cover ADHD. NDIS only covers autism. Yep. It doesn't cover other aspects on no. the spectrum. No. That's challenging for a lot mm. of families who are mm. dealing with this. Another form of respite too will be things like psychologists as well, children seeing psychologists, OTs. So anything that helps them learn to regulate. So you know how I was talking about the tight squeezing. Sometimes foods will help too, like crunchy foods, like rice crackers and things like that will help them to calm down, regulate their nervous system. Also toys like fidget toys to help them. It's called stimming and they stim to calm their nervous system. So they'll have like a toy in their hand. Some of them will have like oral tics that they'll make, things like that, which are to calm their nervous system. So those sometimes those sensory toys can help them as well. That's interesting. Mm. I guess traditionally students weren't encouraged to fidget. No, they weren't. In the classroom. Yeah. Mm. They were encouraged to sit there, be quiet, do Mm. what they were told. Mm. Mm. But there is argument that says that the old style of teaching, like that really discipline actually suits people on the autism spectrum better because it's so structured and so routine-based, right? Like you have to sit there, you can't move. They will have everybody focusing the front of the classroom. There's less distractions, no noise, things like which actually in some ways make learning easier. Whereas now, because it's more fluid in that and the school day is less predictable, it's actually a lot harder. That's mm. fascinating mm. because for most students, the fluidity and the flexibility um, and that ability to be able to ask questions and, and learn is, is really stimulating and, and really positive, mm. but not for kids who are neurodiverse. No, no. And also two things like clutter in the classroom as well. You know how you walk into a kindergarten classroom or year one, year two, and there'll be all this artwork all over the walls and everything, you know, proudly showing off everyone's artwork and that. That clutter and that distraction can be visually, because some people, their visual system is affected by their neurodiversity they will find that so difficult they won't be able to focus in class because of all this stuff around them. Fascinating. Now let's talk about your family joy model. Mm-hmm. So you have a three-part system? My family joy model either works over 10 or 12 weeks. So the way that it works is that in the centre is joy. So what we're aiming for all families is to ultimately have more joy and more peace in their household. Three main, almost like compartmentalized, if you like, that we look at. So we look at nourishment, environment, and alignment. Then under those three, there are three subheadings on each of those. So that's why I say that it's a 10 to 12-week model because it can take 12 weeks to go through. It just depends on how you go with the family when you're working and how things are progressing. What I do is I look at environment. By environment, I mean things like outside influences, so like other allied health professionals that are in their lives, diet, routines and households, things like that. Also, we'll look at the environment as in language that's being used at home, the way the parents are talking to the child, parenting styles, things like that. Then under nourishment, I do look at diet and things like that, but also look at sleep because sleep is so important. Sleep is huge. Sleep is huge, yeah. Also, daily routines. Some families really, really struggle with that because routines are very, very important for people on the autism spectrum. Environment, again, comes back, not just environment at home, environment at school, teachers, really getting the teachers on board working together with a family, being able to support that child well in the classroom, also assisting the parents, 
more fits into the environment and the alignment again with support parents and meeting with the school and getting a really good sense of the ILP process, which is the individual learning plan process for the child, having a really effective ILP in place, but also an active document that is addressed every term and that we look at. So we're aligned, everything in the child's life is aligned together. And also things like martial arts can help these children. So it's all sorts of different things that we're bringing in to the model to make their lives as full as possible, but also looking at having a more peaceful household, which is why I was saying, look at routines, I look at sleep, like different things that make their lives more predictable so the child is calmer in the household. And that's challenging when the parents are obviously under a lot of stress because Mm. the kids aren't sleeping, the kids are having meltdowns, kids aren't happy with clutter. I can see that this is a bit of a vicious cycle Mm. or, or could be. Yeah, and also too can have sensory issues to food and things like that, which can make mealtimes really difficult and really challenging too. So that can be another factor that's thrown into the mix as well. If you have a child that has a lot of meltdowns and things, the other siblings are having to cope with that and live in that household as well, and they might need a bit of rest and respite away from that too. It's all very challenging. Mm. So one thing I really want to have a bit of a deep dive into is the financial impact of all of this, Mm. because as you know, the Joyful Frugalista is all about saving money, investing, and other things. Mm. So how difficult financially is having neurodiverse children for families? Well, it can be really, really difficult. For The first thing to note is that, well, probably all the way through, but particularly when the children are younger, they often need a lot of support going to occupational therapists, going to physiotherapists, maybe going to dietitians, going to speech pathologists, psychologists. If you just sit there and just add those five things up on a monthly basis, if you maybe don't have any NDIS funding or you don't have any health cover, so that can be massive. Plus, one of the parents has to be available to take the child to all of those appointments, which of course, again, has another massive financial impact because it means that either the mum or the dad, if they do work full time, brings then brings in stress that they're always having to ask time off to make time to go to these appointments, or they might cut down to part time work. And then that again brings its own strains financially, or choose not to work altogether. The other thing, too, is that the divorce rate of families with children with any disability is higher than the general population. And I think I've shared with you before that the majority of my clients are single parents and single mums. So they're then having to manage. They often can't work either and themselves will become dependent on NDIS funding or having to be on a pension because they cannot work because their child might have such high needs that they need pretty much to be at home full time. Yeah, I can see that's hard. And actually, Mm. I I do have someone, a, a friend who I know who has had difficulty working. She was in a very potentially high-earning corporate career, Mm. so quite a specialisation to get into, and her son was regularly sent home from school, Mm. is neurodiverse, and they know that, but that Mm. doesn't help when he is exhibiting those, for want of a better word, bad behaviours at school, Mm. makes it difficult for him to be in the school environment, so gets sent home unexpectedly, and that happens a lot. It's Mm. very difficult to suddenly be available Mm. for long hours in a corporate career Mm. and to climb up the ladder. Mm. And unfortunately... Like in his case, too, it could be that the school environment is so unpredictable that he can't cope at school and that he's exhibiting those behaviours. But as you said, and then makes it so hard for the mum to have to, she can't, can't be taking time out like that to, to keep your career going and 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's it's very hard. The school calls, you drop everything, you've got to yep. pick up your kid. I know all <laughs> yeah, about what yeah, that's like. Yeah. It's it is really difficult. And how did it affect you personally? So me personally, I didn't so when I went back to work, I went back to work part time. What I was doing was working at a mid management level in the public service, but trying to do it four days a week. And as you and I both know, being ex public servants, that didn't actually work as a model. And that even though I was working, you know, I was trying to do five days within four yeah, days. Yeah, exactly. Kind of That's what, what, and what happens. Yeah. So look, it wasn't working basically. So what ended up happening is I ended up taking leave without pay. And it wasn't working because it wasn't working the family balance, having to take my older one to appointments, things like that, getting phone calls from the school where either of them were on well, regardless of whether anything else was going on, all that sort of stuff. So I took leave without pay and I took a bit of time out to think about what I wanted to do. And when the children had been younger, I'd volunteered at the school a lot and really enjoyed it. So then I thought about changing my career path but it meant I had to take a huge drop in pay because what well I stopped working for a start so I took leave of that pay but then also went back to do more study and worked as a learning support assistant for quite a while in schools in Canberra but that rate of pay for learning support assistance is low even though it's such a necessary job and teachers couldn't survive without learning support assistance in the classroom but one was low rate of pay. The job is good in the sense that you only work school hours and you get holidays off. So you're at school while your kids are at school. And also I did it part-time, so I did it like three days a week. So I took the load off. But yeah, so that was how it affected me personally. But then having said that, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I didn't have my children because they are my wife or why I do what I do now. And I decided to start my own business because I did become quite frustrated working in schools and the system because unfortunately our education system even though we're so lucky here in Australia, we are highly under-resourced and there's a lot of pressure on teachers and learning support systems and then subsequently families. One of the reasons why I started doing this, I want to take some of the pressure off families. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And that's really important, the work you do. So speaking of which, it's been a very stressful year for many people. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of things happening. Here in Canberra, we've had, what, three months of bushfire haze, I think, mm. and bushfires in both to the west of us, I think, and the south that was threatening Canberra. We've had a massive hailstorm. We've got COVID. There's a lot of things that have been happening. Mm. How do you, can we and how do you support families that are experiencing stress? So that's that's a really, really good question. Well, At the moment, one of the ways that I have responded to this stress was myself and another lady, another coach that I know. We've actually been a free program that we've put out called Recharge Family Joy, and that has actually been around coping with the stresses that have been of 2020. So when helping families work with stress, work with anxiety, so one thing is mindset. So one thing I'd really try to focus with when working with families is moving away from having a fixed mindset to having a growth mindset. And in some ways, that's where COVID has been, dare I say, a bit of an advantage because in some ways it has forced some of us to be in a growth mindset. Like now more of us are working from home, we're using Zoom a lot more. We've had to really adapt and really change. Like you said with this year, what I've been doing, a lot of work around mindset, growth mindset, prioritizing wellness. And that's wellness for the parents as well as for the children, because if your cup is not full, you cannot give from an empty cup. So that's something that I really, really work with, particularly with single mums, is looking after themselves, their mental health, their physical health, their diet, things like that. 
And then the other thing is, is too, is skilling up in the sense that, okay, what can they do? Can they go meditation course? Can they look at living their lives differently? And also skilling up, becoming more knowledgeable around their children's issues and try to help them and courses that they can go on, books that they can read, things like that. Mm, Well, thank you. That's fabulous. Now, one final question. Do you have a Frugalista tip? And I know you do, and I know it's a really good one. My Frugalista tip, and this comes from the work that I do, but it's also something that I've done for quite a number of years now, and that is meal planning. I am a very keen composter and very aware of the environment and our impact on the environment. Apart from starting to compost some time ago, which also is another frugal tip because then you don't have to buy all of this thing exactly. in a really garden, but apart from that, is meal planning. I'm pretty sure that I shared with you that when I started meal planning, which would have probably been around about three years ago now, that we shaved about $50 a week off our grocery bill, so $200 a month. Just to explain to families what meal planning involves is you, so what I do is I have a chart that I put up on the fridge and this is what I tell families to do Monday to Sunday and you plan out all of your dinners. Now, the reason why I use this in my work is that children on the autism spectrum need routine and need predictability. And there will be certain meals that, as you know, with your children as well, that you know. No, they don't like. Yeah. They, at least they know that that meal is coming up and they can prepare themselves for it. So one, it's routine. Two, for children on the spectrum, it's also preparation. And three, also when they're older, taking ownership of it and saying, okay, well, mom's going to cook that meal. I'm not going to like it. So I will work out maybe something else that I can do with, you know, as a meal alternative that night for mum. Or if I can just suck it up, I'll suck it up and eat it. The thing with the meal planning, shaved like $50, much, much less waste. The one thing I found is that we just weren't throwing out as much food because weren't having as many leftovers, wasn't kind of thinking about things on the fly, about what I was going to cook and then rushing to the supermarket. And of course, the local supermarket is more expensive than going to the market. And also to fruit in that, buying X amount per week. So, so many apples, so many oranges, so many, because knowing how much we consume, so they're not over buying as well. Just to recap, you were saving at least $50 a week mm. and reducing your waste by meal planning mm. and also by having the meal plan up somewhere public on your fridge mm. meant that your kids could look at that and it helped just with the sanity of the, the meal times because yep. they knew what was coming ahead. They could prepare for it mentally. They didn't want to eat Brussels sprouts. Well, they could go, well, I'll make myself something else. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Fabulous. Well, that's a great tip. And I'm all for meal planning, as you know. And in fact, I do actually have a meal plan up on my fridge. I don't know that it's that current this week, but in general, I do have (laughs) a meal plan up up on my fridge and it does help with the family as well. My Mm. kids also like to know what's happening. Mm. So thank you very much, Patricia, for being my guest. Now, where can my listeners find you? Your listeners can find me on my website, which is www.sociallivingsolutions.com.au. They can also find me on Instagram at Patricia Falchetta, and they can also find me on Facebook. I have a personal Facebook page, which is Patricia Falchetta, and I also have a business Facebook page, which is Social Living Solutions. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Now, please, I would love your help to like and comment on this podcast, especially if you're listening to it via Apple Podcasts. Please make sure to leave a lovely comment. It would just really make my day. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to the joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You got an accentuate the positive eliminate the negative latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with.